All right, good evening. How are you all doing tonight? Marvelous. Good. All right, a couple announcements here before we get into the word tonight. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, if you want to turn there. or What's the term for your apps? Scroll there? Swipe there? Something like that? Yeah. Uh, first thing, uh, next week is our final Wednesday night, midweek gathering here congregationally. We are shifting the focus of our midweek ministry from a congregational gathering to multiple, multiple small group, community groups as we're calling them, gatherings throughout the week. And so um, hopefully those of you that are here tonight, you've had an opportunity to go on the website or the app and check out the different groups that we have going on and, and uh, find one that, that, that fits for you and your schedule and availability. We got some morning groups, we got some night groups, we got an online group, um, but all of it is geared around um, just helping you guys just grow closer together in fellowship and community and unity as you get into the word together, as you pray with one another, worship together, whatever is going to be taking place there. But we're excited to see what God is going to be doing in that. So again, next Wednesday will be our final Wednesday here congregationally. And then for our evangelism outreach that takes place on Fridays, they have been meeting at <clears throat> Ruby's over in Whittier at a car show that's taking place there, but this Friday, so a couple days from now, this Friday, for those of you that are plugged in with the evangelism ministry, they're going to be going to a different location. It's called the Main Street Classic Car Show, and it's in Garden Grove. That's all the information I got. There's this newfangled thing called the interwebs, so look it up, Okay. Just go Google the Main Street Classic Car Show, or Mallory is here tonight. She's waving her hand, so she will be um, uh, part of the leadership over there with that outreach. And so just ask her exactly where it's at, or go Google it and find out. And um, do you guys meet here? You guys just meet at the location? Yeah, at, the location. at the location. Okay, so, so plug in there, and uh, we'll have uh, tracks on hand and stuff. But if you want to grab a bunch, we have a table over here, as well as out some, uh, some out in the foyer as well. And I just encourage you guys to, to keep tracking, you know. Uh, whether you're doing the evangelism stuff or not, you know, we heard a story the other day. Someone, one of my brothers here actually was sharing with me, it just really touched my heart. He was like, hey, you know, a while ago you guys put out the challenge to just do one track a week, right? If you could do just one a week, just do one a week. And he's like, so I did one a week. And it's like, all right, I did it, you know. He goes, so I did that for a few weeks. And then it turned into, you know, maybe a couple a week. And then it was every other day. And and uh, now he's plugged in with our outreach ministry, and he's like, I'm handing out hundreds of tracks, you know? And it's just like, that's so cool. That's such a blessing, you know? And, and that's how it starts, you know? Just do one. And, and, and God will open up doors and, and move on your heart. And so, um, so yeah, those, that's the announcements. As I said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11 tonight. And uh, tonight, we're kind of building on last Wednesday's study here in 1 John, which was how to know that you are saved. That was the last study we looked at. It was 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And uh, just as a brief recap, if you don't remember, the test was simply this. You can know that you know that you are indeed saved if in your life you have a regular, consistent desire, intent, goal, or trajectory in your life towards holiness towards obeying the commands of Jesus, all right? I say it that way because the Bible doesn't say that you have to perfectly obey his commands 100% of the time. 
Scripture readily acknowledges that we stumble, we fall, we mess up. Sometimes, just as petulant, disobedient children, we just go, no, when God tells us to do something. But as a loving father, he might discipline us in those times, but he doesn't cast us out. We don't cease to be his children. We don't cease to be saved. And, and, and the opportunity for us is, is if the desire of our heart, even in times when we say no, there's that guilt that comes along with it. That's the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer, right? That's that guilt you might fight against for a while, and then you're finally like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry, right? That I want to obey you. I want to do the right thing. And, and, and for the majority of our lives as Christians, at least most of the time, we're endeavoring to walk in obedience, right? That's, if that's characteristic of your life, you can know that you're saved. You can have confidence that you're saved. But if there's no desire, <clears throat> no intent, <laughs> if the majority of your life is, I don't care what God has to say, or, you know, I know the Bible says what I'm doing is wrong, but I disagree, I'm gonna do however I want. If that's what characterizes your life, John says you're a liar, and you don't know Jesus. You aren't saved. So the first test was a test of obedience, all right? Tonight, in verses 7 through 11, it would be page 2 of the test, if you will, okay? This one is a test of love. The test is simply this. Do you love other believers? Do you love them? Now, the word love occurs 24 times in the 105 verses that we find in 1 John. For John and other New Testament writers, they considered love like the, the circulatory system of the church, right? You know, our circulatory system uh, in our bodies, it carries the blood, you know, to every part of our body. It nourishes our cells. It keeps us healthy. And if our circulatory system should shut down, guess what? You die. <laughs> you die. Well, as that system is vital to our physical body, love is vital to our spiritual body, the body of Christ, the church that we're a part of, as well as our individual lives. And when Christians love one another... The body is healthy. The body is healthy. When we don't love one another, well, our spiritual arteries uh, get clogged and the church is then in danger of a heart attack. So, someone once said, words are like coins. If they're in circulation long enough, they tend to wear out. <laughs> and the word love can be that way, right? In English, it's an odd word because, well, we have one word that we use for everything right? There's not a whole lot of meaning in the English word love when you say, oh, spouse, wife, husband, I love you. And then in the same breath go, I really love pizza. <laughs> Obviously, we mean two different things, right? But English is a little limited. And so, you know, we'll use that word to refer to our favorite sports team or our hobby. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of watered down a little bit in some ways. But in the Greek, there's four different words in the Greek, to describe the different types of love that, that we can express. Two of those Greek words are directly used in our New Testament. Those words are phileo and agape. The other two words are eros, which, which is the Greek word for like physical love, 
or an intimate love or a sexual love. And then this word storge, which refers to a, like a family love, like how parents love their kids, how kids are to love their parents. That's the word storge. Now, like I said, those two words aren't directly used in our New Testament, but we do have examples of these types of love all throughout Scripture. And then in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word eros is there directly. But for for the sake of our study in our New Testament, what we're looking at, these two words, phileo and agape, they're used all over the place. Phileo is the second most used word in the New Testament for love, and it refers to a love between friends, all right? Um, it's uh, often translated or, or, or morphed a little bit into the Greek word Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, right? That's what the city of Philadelphia is known for, city of brotherly love. Unless you get mugged there, then you might think differently. But, you know, city of brotherly love, that word Philadelphia, right? And, and when it says brotherly, it's talking about a friendship type of love, the way two friends would love each other. It's a strong bond between people who share common values, common interests, common activities, um, and biblically, we have a, an example of that between David and Jonathan, where they were like best friends, BFFs. They were buds, right? They were friends, and it says they loved each other. And the type of love it's talking about there is not some type of erotic sexual love that some people try and turn it into. It's, it's talking about this brotherly love. And then the word agape. This is the most used word in the New Testament for love. Between its verb form and its noun form, it's found 226 times in the New Testament. Now, agape is the love that loves regardless of changing circumstances. It's what we call unconditional love, love without conditions. It's the type of love that says, look, um, I'm going to love you knowing that I'm not going to get anything back from you for it. It's a type of love that says, "I'm, I'm choosing to love you, not because of who you are, not because of what you did, not because of what you didn't do, not because of what I'm going to get out of it. It's just because I choose to love you. That's agape. Now, this is the type of love, obviously, that God has for us. And as believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, this is the type of love that we're we're compelled or led to have for him through the Holy Spirit for God and for our neighbor. And so agape is the word that John uses throughout the entirety of 1 John. And it's the word he uses in this particular section we're looking at tonight to help us identify whether or not we are walking in the light, whether or not we are walking in obedience. And so let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, we ask that you would bless us tonight, God. Speak to our hearts and encourage us, Lord. God, last week as we looked at verses 3 through 6, we were just encouraged, Lord, that we could know that we know you. We can know that we're your children. We can know that we're saved. We don't have to walk around and live every day wondering, am I saved today? Was I saved yesterday? Will I be saved tomorrow? Because God, your word spells out the behavior, the conduct, the life that we live that that really evidences that we know you, God. Lord, one of the most powerful evidences, one of the most critical evidences that we're walking in obedience to you is whether we're loving one another. And so, God, I pray you would speak to us through your word tonight and what that means, what that looks like, what it is, what it isn't. Lord, so that we don't lay upon ourselves some unbiblical expectations, but at the same time, Lord, that we wouldn't ignore the biblical expectations. So, God, speak to us tonight, Lord. I pray for anybody that you have an appointment with tonight, Lord, about their walk. I pray, Lord, that they would hear your voice tonight. I pray for anybody listening that doesn't know you. 
for whatever reason, they're watching this video online or here in this room, God. I pray, Lord, tonight they would hear you. They would respond to your love for them. They would receive you as their Lord and Savior, God. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. He says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, the opening of this section sounds weird, right? I'm not writing you a new command. I am writing you a new command. Right, John? Pick. You're confusing us, all right? What do you mean? John, is it an old command or is it a new command? This is John's answer. Yes. It's both, all right? It's both. Now, the command he's referring to specifically, you find in verse 10, when he tar- starts talking about loving one another, and we'll get to that in a moment, but, but love is, is an old command. It is an old command, and it's, it was given all the way back in the Old Testament. He says there in verse 7 that this is an old cam- command that you have had from the beginning, right? That phrase means from the beginning of something, the start of something. Now, contextually, he could be referring to the the start of, of his reader's Christian experience, right? Since the moment you got saved, you've had this command to love one another. Um, it, it could refer to the start of the gospel as taught by Jesus, and we're going to look at that in a moment, where Jesus said, hey, a new command I give you, love one another. Or it could just simply generally be referring to the start of something that has been true, like from the, from the very beginning of this command being true at whatever point it started. So it's a little bit unclear on that, but the point is, is that the old commandment to love one another is foundational to our faith, foundational. It's foundational and it has been around for a very long time. Now, last week, when we looked at verses 3 through 6, we saw that John uses the the plural word commandments twice, right? This is how you know that you know him, if you keep his commandments, right? And and that word there, commandments, was synonymous with keeping his word, right? And it's kind of used here. I'm not writing you a new command. Um, The old command is the word that you've heard. So, again, they're being used synonymously there, but there's a difference. In verses 3 through 6, he uses it in the plural. Here, he uses it in the singular, I'm not writing you a new command, singular, all right? Um, And he says that four times. Now, I touched on this a little bit in the last study, but I believe what he's getting at here is the command, we we really kind of find it in in, uh, Luke chapter 10, there was an expert of the law who approached Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, called him teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said, well, what does the law say? What, what, is, what do the commandments tell you, right, is what he was asking this expert in the law. And this expert in the law said, well, it says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's the right answer. Do that and you will live. Now, that expert in the law, as he was quoting that, he was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Deuteronomy 6.5 says this, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So loving God is not a new command. It's an old command. It's foundational. Then in Leviticus 19.18, it says this. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. They're old commands. Jesus elsewhere taught that everything that is said in the law and everything that the prophets said depend on this statement or these two commands here, if you call it, or this one command expressed in these two ways. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders, and their challenge to him is which commandment in the law is the greatest commandment, right? Religious people like to prioritize religious activity, right? This is the important stuff. This is not so important. So as long as I'm doing this, I'm good with God. I'm good. I'm spiritual. And this, you know, I really don't have to obey that, you know? And sometimes Christians, we get caught up in that. You know, as long as I'm, I'm praying and worshiping, I'm good, but I can cuss like a sailor. That's kind of secondary. No big deal. No. <laughs> it's, it's all the word of God. It's all Jesus' commands. But in Matthew 22, when these Pharisees said, hey, tell us which one's the most important one, right? Jesus responded to them with love God and love your neighbor. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, love your God and love your neighbor. He responded to them with the same thing that this expert of the law uh, quoted. And then he goes on to say that all the law and prophets depend on these two things. So Jesus was being very explicit that, that love for others, loving one another, was, 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 was essential, was enmeshed into, was a cornerstone of loving obedience to God. The idea that these two things, everything the law and the prophets taught hung on these two things, love God, love your neighbor. Essentially he's saying, look, if you love God, you're going to love your neighbor. And then as John gets into this section, he kind of reverses it. If you don't love your neighbor, then we can legitimately question whether you love God because they're so tied together. So again, John's point, the old command to love, it's foundational. It's an old command. Now John, in, uh, or Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, this is where he said, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And you might think, well, why is Jesus saying a new command here when back in Leviticus he said to love your neighbor? Well, there's two different words in the Greek for new, the word new, all right? Or not in the Greek, in the New Testament. There's more than two in the language, but two in the New Testament. One of the Greek words for new means new with respect to time, right? Um, <clears throat> I can't think of an example. It just escaped me. I had a good one, and then it's gone. But new with respect to time, okay? The other word means new with respect to quality. You understand the difference? New in time, new in quality, right? Um, you know, if there was a new way of doing things, we said, hey, we have, we have a, a new midweek type of ministry we're doing, right? We're doing things in a new way, you know? Um, it's different. There's a quality there that's different. Um, if we, on Sunday mornings we said, you know, hey, we're still meeting on Sunday mornings, and, but we're gonna, I'm going to teach from the back of the room. We're saying we're doing Sunday mornings in a new way. That would be a different quality, right? But when you say new in time, like if we said we're no longer meeting Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock, we're going to meet at 2 in the afternoon, that would be new in respect to time. You understand the difference? Or did I totally botch that? We're good? 
Okay, good. All right. <laughs> but the idea is this. Um, new with respect to quality is what John is referring to here. It's what he's using. Is what Jesus is saying in John 13, 14 when he says, I give you a new command, okay? It's not a command that didn't exist before. It's, it's the old command that's being expressed in a new way. It's going to have a new quality to it. And, you know, sometimes something old and familiar can be given a new freshness, uh, a, a newness like it never had before. Like we, we hear this when people um, do covers of old songs, right? You hear an old song and it's done in, in a new way by a different band or a different genre. And you're like, oh, I, I'm familiar. I know that song. It's the old song, but it's done in, in, a, in a new, different way. This is kind of what he's talking about here. So the commandment that John is writing to us is something old, something established, something foundational, but it's new in terms of its quality. It's new in terms of its authority. It's love with a fresh emphasis, with a new example, and a new experience in our lives as we walk in it. This commandment is new because Jesus himself invested it with new meaning, right? By his life and his death for us, we understand love in a whole brand new way, in a whole different way. There was a different paradigm by, by Jesus' example of love by not only living but dying for us on the cross. And so loving God demonstrated through our love for others, it's always been a part of the deal. It's always been a part of the deal, but, but Jesus really showed us what that looks like in a fresh way. So in verse 8, he goes, although he said, I'm writing you an old command, or I'm not writing you an old command, he goes, yet I am writing you. Hold on, I'm confusing myself. <laughs> I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the beginning. And then in verse 8, he goes, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So that's why he's saying, look, he's, he's like, I'm not writing you a new command, but eh, I'm kind of writing you a new command, right? This is what John is getting at here. But then he says this new command, he goes, which is true in him, and that's referring to the example. Jesus was the new example of God's love. Jesus was the new definition, and he is the greatest definition of love. The greatest definition of love is the person of Jesus Christ, right? If you want to know what true love is, study the life of Jesus, Study his life because he is the supreme demonstration of love in its agape form, in its unconditional form, unselfish form. Jesus is the perfect example. You go through the Gospels and you think of all the different people that Jesus loved and ministered to, right? You think of Mary Magdalene who had a questionable past, but he didn't judge her. He didn't have expectation on her. He didn't have conditions on her relationship. He just loved her. You have the rich young ruler. Jesus loved him, even though that guy was like, oh, I'm kind of tied to my possessions and I want that more. Nicodemus, the religious Pharisee, right? Jesus loved him. Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector. Jesus loved him. Hey, bro, I see you up in that tree. I'm going to come to your house tonight and have dinner. That was a huge deal because everybody hated tax collectors. Jews who were collecting taxes for Rome were hated by all the other Jews because the other Jews considered them traitors and turncoats. How dare you work for Rome and take our money to give to Rome? You're, you're filth. You're disgusting. You're the lowest of the low in society. What did Jesus do? Hey, bro, I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. The woman at the well. Such a great example of the love of God. 
Right? Women in general in Jesus' day were treated with little respect. It wasn't, it wasn't the world we live in today where, you know, laws and everything is like men and women are equal. And I'm not saying women don't have troubles in today's world either, but, but back then, women didn't have rights the way they have uh, rights today, right? It was a different culture. It was a different time. But the social customs of the time is it was especially bad for a man to even speak to a woman like her. Like she's been with one man after one man after one man after one man. She was shunned, but Jesus talked to her, and that was taboo. You don't, you don't talk to a woman like that. Yet his love stepped beyond all of it. And he spoke to all these people because he wanted to bring them to the knowledge of the love of God. He wanted them to know that God loved them and that their lives could be changed and their sins could be forgiven. And so he was willing to step past social customs. He was willing to step beyond disagreements, cultural disagreements, racial disagreements. He was willing to step past all of it. And then you think about the 12 disciples, right? Think about it. Your God coming to this earth and you're like, hmm, I'm going to pick 12 guys to represent me. You wouldn't pick these 12 guys if, if you were thinking from our perspective, right? These would be the worst 12 guys to pick. These are the guys I want to represent me here on earth, right? First, you have ADHD Peter, always speaking before he thought, always running ahead of the Lord, contradicting the Jesus, trying to speak for Jesus, and he just but he was the leader of the pack. When Jesus needed him the most, he denied he even knew Jesus. And yet this is the guy that Jesus picked. Every time Jesus looked at Peter, he had love in his eyes for him. Then you had doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. I need empirical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. If I don't see it, I won't believe it. I don't care that I walked in from the three years. I don't care that I saw the miracles. I don't care that he said it. I need to see it with my own eyes. Jesus loved him. Here you go, bro. Touch me. Here's the evidence. You know, all those 12 guys with their issues and their internal disagreements and their failures and their foibles, Jesus just loved them through all of it. Loved them in spite of it. And now, it might make sense to most of us like on the human side of things, it might make sense to us to go, well, of course we should love our friends. Of course we should love those who love us. But Jesus took it a step further and said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. You know, Jesus loved his enemies when they were putting him to death. Think about that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what he said. He prayed for the Jewish leaders who were just clamoring for his death. Crucify him. Father, forgive them. The soldiers that, that, that drove the spikes into his hands and feet nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them. The soldiers who, who gambled for his clothes at the foot of the cross as he's bleeding and dying and suffocating on the cross. Father, forgive them. Can we do that today? Walk up to a stranger, maybe even someone you know who hates Jesus, hates Christians, hates the church, to approach that person and say, hey, God loves you so much he died for you and have that person just spit in your face and cuss you out. For us to go, Father, forgive them. 
No, usually it's like, Father, forgive me, and come about punch him in the face, right? But Jesus, his, his example was just, uh, I love them so much. Rich, poor, high class, low class, Jew, Gentile, all of them, Jesus loved them all. The world never saw love like they saw in the life of Jesus, and it's the same today. The world never sees love like the love of God for his creation. Now, John said this new commandment, it's not only true in Jesus, he's not, the only, only the, he's not only the perfect example of this, but he goes, it's true in you as well. Think about that. Us, Christians, it's true in us as well. Jesus is our example, and through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we are the example to the world. We're the example of, of what God's love looks like to the world. And what's that example? Agape love, unselfish love, unconditional love. That love that gives and gives and gives without ever expecting anything in return. The love that says, I love you regardless of the circumstances. I love you regardless of what you do or don't do. I love you anyways. I will continue to love you anyways. It's a love that puts the needs of others before our own. It's hard. It's difficult. But that's why God sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us so we could do supernaturally what we cannot do on our own. But as with the ability to say no to sin that we only have because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we have this ability to love in a way that runs so contrary to our nature our human nature, it runs so contrary to the world. We have a capacity to love in a way that, that is impossible without God himself dwelling within us. And as I said earlier, it's the love that God has for us. And especially within God's family, the love that we're to have for one another. Believer to believer, Christian to Christian. You know, when Jesus entered the world, it says that he became the light of the world, Right? And John here says he is the true light and is already shining. He brought the illumination. He brought the picture. He opened the eyes of the world to who God was and what his love looked like. He is the true light. And, and John says it's already shining, right? Jesus was here. And, and if you've come to know him, he's, he's in your life. You're saved. And then he says the spiritual darkness is passing away, right? That spiritual darkness, that evil, that hate that exists in the world, it was penetrated by, by Jesus. He came into the world and he broke through that darkness. And when he says it's passing away there, you might go, well, I look at the world today. It doesn't seem like the darkness is passing away, right? The phrase is, 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 is a, is a um, I want to say a conclusive term, but that's not the word. It's a phrase referring to the end of all things, right? That at the end of all things, the darkness will be done with. Sin will be done with. Hate will be done with. And so as his followers, as his children, the Bible tells us that we're to let our light shine, right? Those that grew up in children's church, right? You remember the song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? We're to, we're to let our light shine in this world so that the world sees Jesus. So that they see him. Back to John chapter 13, verse 35 now, he said, I'm giving you a new command. 
love one another. And then in verse 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He didn't say, people are going to know you're my disciples by your doctrinal orthodoxy. He didn't say, the world is going to know you're my disciples by your theological soundness, by your ability to defend the faith, by your knowledge of the facts in church history. Those things are all good in their proper use and context, but Jesus didn't say they're going to know that you're mine by those things. He said, they're going to know you're mine. They're going to know you're my students. They're going to know you're my followers. They're going to know you're my children by your love for one another. Now again, John is writing this letter to to combat some false teaching that exists in the church, right? And these false teachers, they were called Gnostics. Gnostics thought that that knowledge was the most important thing, like knowledge was, was everything, and they thought, you know, we have secret knowledge, so we're the ones that are really close to God, we're the ones that are really spiritual, and, and the only way to get, really get to God is to become one of us and get our secret knowledge, right? For them, love was secondary. But this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We know that we all have knowledge, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, for both Paul and John, knowledge of the truth, it's important. They considered it very important. Knowing the truth of who God is, very important. Not to be dismissed, not to be discounted, but knowledge alone. Sometimes knowledge alone can cause us to become proud and boastful. You know, without love, we just become arrogant. And, and, and sometimes Christians without love but having knowledge, they just want to be people that it's like, I want to win the argument. I want to make you look stupid. I want to make you feel dumb, right? And, 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 and that's wrong. Now, things like apologetics, good. Defending the faith, absolutely. Having informed intellectual discussion with people about, about biblical things, yeah, that's good. But... but There's got to be love behind it. I'm having this discussion with you about biblical things, prophecy, archaeology, whatever, because I care about you. Because I want you to know God. I want you to be saved. I don't care about winning the argument. I want your life to be changed by the power of God. So people will know that we are truly followers of Jesus, not by what we know, but by what we do, how we love one another. Now, what is the connection between love and God's commands? I mentioned it earlier. If you love God, you should be able to love your neighbor, right? Because if you're loving your neighbor, if you love your neighbor, that, that means you're obeying God's commands. What do I mean? Well, you're not going to steal from them. God said, thou shalt not steal. You're not going to commit adultery with him. God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. You're not going to lie to them or lie about them. God said that shall not lie, right? So if you're, if you're loving God and you're saying, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endeavor to keep your commandments, that means you're going to keep those commandments that govern our relationships with other people. So you're not going to slander your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not going to gossip about them. You're not going to lie about them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to covet their things. You're not going to wish harm upon them. Now, verse 9 it builds on this, that, that ultimately you won't hate them. 
You won't hate them or do hateful things to them. Verse 9, he says this, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So there's a few things here that, that indicate to me that he's talking to believers about believers. One, he uses the phrase brothers and sisters constantly, right? He's referring to people that are part of the same family. But our response towards other people, what he's getting at here, our, our love towards one another, specifically within the body of Christ, but this does apply to outside of the church as well, um, then serves as evidence of our Christian character, right? It's a part of the test. Like loving our fellow believers is walking in the light. Walking in the light we've seen through this letter already is a picture of walking in obedience. Walking in the light is saying I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm, I'm choosing through the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and yes to God's way. And so I'm walking in the light. That's the metaphor that he's developing here. You cannot say you're walking in the light and hate your brother and sister. Now the word hate here or hates, it's in the present tense. So it's talking about an ongoing hateful action or an ongoing hateful attitude. It might be carrying those serious grudges that some of us can hang on to really well. That's what he's talking about here. And so it's a similar idea from the last study that, that if the overall trajectory, the overall desire, the overall intent, the majority of your behavior in your life is, is hate or hateful towards other Christians, then there's good reason to doubt your salvation. This is what he's getting at here. Tying it back to verses three through six and then tying it back to the context of the rest of the book. It doesn't mean we won't have times of stumbling in this and we've dealt with that in previous studies. But just like light and dark cannot exist at the same time in the same place, you're lying if you're carrying hate towards someone in your life and saying, oh no, I'm walking in obedience to the Lord. No, you're not. John's saying it's a, he's saying here it's a one or another scenario. Now the word hates, it means to have a strong aversion to something. It means to dislike intensely. It means to be disgusted by, to have loathing for, or to detest. You guys all understand those words, right? I don't like you, but I like, really don't like you, right? It's, it's, it's a heavy, heavy disgust and aversion to somebody. Now, we've all at different times been angry with, irritated by, perturbed by another brother and sister in Christ. We all have. I have. I'll be honest. I love you guys, but some of you have really made me mad at times, you know? doesn't mean I don't care about you and love you, but there's been times, maybe you online, I don't know. And I've probably made some of you mad at some times. You got frustrated with me, and, 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 and that happens between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It's hard to, to get along perfectly all the time, and, and that's not what he's talking about here. But if we aren't careful... He's not saying you can never be angry and you never be irritated, but, but what he's getting at, if, if we're not careful, unresolved anger over time turns into resentment. And if that's left unchecked, it gives birth to hatred. 
And we all know what hatred leads to, right? The dark side. Okay, it was too easy. I had to, I had to, I had to do it, right? Low-hanging fruit. Okay. But really, the idea here is, is a life characterized by hate is a life that is walking in the darkness, not walking in the light. Now, you might ask, and I already touched on this a little bit, you know, when John says here you're either in the light or not, is he talking about you're saved or not saved? Is that what he's getting at? Um, one, you know, the language of brother and sister is referring to family. But if you remember back in 1 John chapter 1, uh, it's my belief that, that walking in light or walking in the darkness is referring to the stumbling that believers can experience, right? The stumbling. Walking in darkness doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're not walking in the light of God's character and who he is, that you're not walking in obedience. There's only one person who has no darkness in them permanently, and 1 John chapter 1 said it. It's God. God is the only one in whom there is no darkness at all. We, however, still possess the capacity to choose to walk in the light or to walk in the darkness. And the dynamic of obedience is a moment-by-moment day-by-day, week-to-week question of what are we going to choose? That's the dynamic, you know. We, we, when we most often choose obedience, when we most often choose to walk in the light, when we most often choose to keep God's commands to do what he wants, chapter 2 is already established. It demonstrates that we're his. It demonstrates that we're saved. When we have that conviction within us, it demonstrates that, that, that we're there. And then going back to chapter one, when we're walking in the light, it demonstrates that our fellowship with God is good and solid. It also maintains our fellowship with God. It maintains our fellowship with one another. So I believe the context of the letter so far, especially in the context of verses three through six, he's still speaking to saved believers. So when he talks about light and darkness here, he's not talking about saved or not saved. He's talking about being obedient or not being obedient. He's speaking of those who cannot say they are without sin, because none of us can say that. He's speaking to those who occasionally choose disobedience over obedience, but whose intent in the majority of their life, the overall trajectory of their lives, is to do what God wants them to do. That's who he's talking to here. So, the one who says he is in the light or who says, I'm currently walking in obedience in solid fellowship with God, but hates one or more of his fellow believers, intensely dislikes, has a strong aversion for, detests, loathes. He says, if that's you, you're really in the darkness until now. That phrase, until now, it's pretty interesting, right? What it literally means is, at this moment, as you're hearing these words, as you're reading this letter, you're in the darkness. You're walking in disobedience. Why? Well, because verse 11, he says, you're walking in disobedience, or he says, um, you're stumbling around in the dark, blind, because you can't see. Why? Because you're not in the light, right? If you were in the light, you wouldn't be stumbling, as verse 10 says. It says there would be no cause for stumbling because you would be able to see because you're in the light. It's all a picture of being in or acting in obedience to Christ's command, specifically how he summed it all up. Love God, love your neighbor. His command to love your neighbor and then by doing so demonstrate that you do indeed love God. Now, if you're hearing this or reading this 
and, and you realize that you're currently in disobedience to this, that, that you have been harboring hate, this intense aversion for it, intense dislike, disgust, loathing for another Christian. That's the specific context, another Christian. If that's what's been in your life right now, John has already told you what to do. Confess that sin. Confess that sin so that Jesus can cleanse you from its stain. As you're realizing, I need to confess that sin, and the guilt hits you, and the condemnation hits you, don't let that then, am I really saved? Do I really know Jesus? The fact that you're feeling the the conviction of it is proof that you know Jesus. So confess, and let Jesus forgive you. Let him cleanse you. That's the dynamic. Character brings about conduct in our lives. You know, people do what they do because they are what they are. And those of us that call ourselves Christians, we, we, we exist in this strange paradox of having two natures at the same time. It's a really frustrating thing to have two natures at the same time. One that has been crucified with Christ, our old nature, one that has been buried with him in death as, as we evidence in baptism, right? But the other one that has been born again, has been resurrected, has been empowered to new life, but both have an effect on our lives based upon which one we feed, according to the book of Romans. So from the perspective of our old nature, our sin nature, we want to choose the selfish thing. We want to put ourselves above others, before others. We want to love ourselves first and foremost. Me first. We want to remain in the darkness because nobody can see what we do in the darkness. And we think, because no one can see what, we, or what we're doing in the darkness, well, there's no accountability. And we briefly forget that it's like, God's everywhere. And then in that darkness, it's, well, you know, just be free. Do whatever you want. You know, let's prioritize the commands. This one's important. This one I don't need to really work on. Who cares if it hurts others? Who cares if it harms others, you know? As long as I'm pleased, I'm satisfied. But as a Christian, a saved child of God, the reality is is that, that, that we all came to a moment in our lives. At some point in your past, you came to a moment in your life where you recognized the bondage you were in, right? You recognized the, the, the destruction that, that sin was bringing to bear on your life, whether it was addictions or behaviors or promiscuity or, or just being a, a hateful person through and through. You recognized that. And God drew you to himself, right? You came to realize that no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't stop sinning. You couldn't stop doing those wicked things. It was just who you were. And so you called out to Jesus. You asked him to save you, to free you from the power of sin, and he did. So now, from the perspective of our born-again nature, we still have this other nature that is still like, hey, be selfish, hey, You first, number one. Hey, you don't need to do that. Hey, that command, didn't you put that at the bottom of the list? You don't need to obey that one, right? That nature is still there. But from the perspective of our born-again nature, we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God himself lives within us. And guess what? The Bible says God 
is love. So we've been given a supernatural capacity to love in ways we never could. A capacity to love in ways our former self would just be like, what? That makes no sense. And to love in ways that the world today, the unsaved world today goes, what? That doesn't make sense. We're given the choice by the power of God dwelling within us to choose to put others before ourselves, to put others above ourselves. We're given the ability to choose to love God first, to love others first. We're given the choice through the power of the Holy Spirit to step into the light where everybody can see what we do, where everybody can see how we live, We're empowered, we're enabled to say no to the sin of hate. If you have that in your life, the desire to do that, the the conviction to do that when you're not, you're saved. We're given an ability to do what we couldn't do before, to put it another way. We're able to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another, to build up one another, to accept one another, to admonish one another, to care for, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens, to teach, comfort, encourage, and exhort one another, to show hospitality to one another, or to put it in a different way, to love one another. As God has loved us, with a love that loves regardless of circumstances, that loves without condition, that loves regardless of whether or not the other person has earned it, whether they deserve it, to to love without any condition the way that God loves us. And the very fact that we have a desire to do that, the very fact that we've been enabled and can exercise the choice to say, I'm not going to be hateful. I'm not going to dis- detest and despise. And, no, I'm going I'm to love is proof and demonstrates that we are indeed his children. So the question to close, close with tonight is, do you love God's people? That's page two of the test. Do you love God's people? I'm with you. There's a lot of them that it's really hard to love. I'm with you. I'm not arguing with that, right? But God didn't say, well, here's the conditions in which you don't have to love them. He said, no, no, no. Love them. Love them. Do you love them enough to serve them? Do you love them enough to pray for them? Do you love them enough to to gather and worship with them? Do you love them enough to forgive them? Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and I, if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. 
Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And there was no better demonstration of love given in the entirety of Scripture and the entirety of human history than the love of God demonstrated on the cross. You know, John 3.16 says, For God loved the world this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God gave everything in service to us. God gave everything when we didn't deserve it because he loved us. He didn't wait till we earned it. He knew we couldn't. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves, extended grace and mercy because he chose to. And that's the example he left for us to follow. And when I read that list in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm like, thanks for the impossible list, God. And he goes, well, that's kind of the point. Depend on me. Ask me to help you to be this person. Ask me to help you love the unlovable. Ask me to help you love those that, that you really struggle even liking a little bit. Ask me to help you. And God's, God's like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to do it. And you'll find that when you express love to those that maybe you've expressed hate to in the past, they're just going to be dumbfounded. What's going on? And what a neat opportunity to say, you know what? I want you to know how much God loves you. Because God loved me enough when I was his enemy to die for my sins. And I would hate to be the reason that you think God is hateful because you know I'm a Christian. So I, I repent of that. Forgive me. I'm so sorry. I want to show you love. How can I serve you? How can I help? Because hatred, it ultimately leads to spiritual blindness. And when we stumble around in the dark, we're inevitably going to get hurt. You know this if you've ever stubbed your toe. We break our fellowship with God. We break our fellowship with one another. And we can't walk in the light and, 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 and hate a member of our Christian family at the same time. Although a Christian may temporarily stumble into the sin of hating somebody, detesting somebody, if you're truly a Christian, you cannot live with that very long. You definitely can't live with that with peace in your heart about it because you will be convicted. And so if that's you tonight, if that's you online, confess. Just confess it to God. Say, God, I've, I've had the sin of hate in my heart towards this person, that person. Maybe it's a married couple situation and you're like, I've, I've, gosh, I've, I've had hate in my heart. I've detested my spouse. God, forgive me of that. And the Bible says he's like, done. God, change my heart, working on it. God, I want to love the way you love. Yeah, that's why I'm living within you so that you can love the way I love. Return to your first love by confession. Forgive whoever it is you currently feel hate for. Let go of it and let the love of God flow through your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And yet, God, the reality of our demonstration of love to you is, is, is often just feels so lacking. And so, Lord, I'm thankful that you, you, you see our hearts God, that when we stumble in these areas, when we stray back into the darkness, 
Lord, you are faithful to, to call us out, God. When we say we love God, but we're not loving our neighbor, Lord, you're, you're, you're faithful to look at us and go, come on. Stop being a liar. Just confess the truth and, and let's get on with, with righteousness. And Lord, thank you for that. Thank you so much. I pray, Lord, for anybody that's, that's watching this study, Lord, that's a believer, they're saved. God, the testimony of their confession of you, Lord, the reality of their, their desire in their lives to be obedient, the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit when they're not being, Lord, that relationship of confession and restoration and healing, God, all of that is testament to their, their Christianity, that they're your child. But Lord, a part of us saying we love you is loving our neighbors. And Lord, expressing that love to our brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, God, we're not always gonna agree we're not always gonna be on the same page. And Lord, we ask that you just change us even in that, God. That we would be quick to forgive. That we would be quick to seek restoration with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, because the world is watching us. And the world that doesn't know you needs to see the example of the love of God flowing through God's people. And so help us, Lord, help us. Thank you for loving us so much. And so, Lord, we confess the, the, the hatreds we've been harboring in our hearts. We confess them to you, God. And while we're praying, anybody that has something like that, just in the quietness of your heart, just say, God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Restore me. And he's doing that right now. And he's probably also putting on your heart something like you need to go talk to them, you need to apologize, you need to do something. Lord, that that you're putting into our minds and our hearts right now, Lord, just help us to follow through and to do that, God. So that the people around us that don't know you, God, would see this supernatural love that they don't understand. That it would draw them to you, God, through our obedience to you in this. We love you so much. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.